0: This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. Conversations about the future of work have been amplified over the past 18 months, as organisations and workers in Australia and around the world have adjusted to the realities of remote working. As we emerge from the pandemic, there are few barriers as to what the future of work will look like and there's a real opportunity to harness flexible working arrangements. I'm Shirley Chowdhury, the host of Women's Agenda podcast, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by Nina Mapson-Bone, the Managing Director of Beaumont Consulting and the President of the Recruitment Consulting and Staffing Association of Australia and New Zealand. In today's conversation, Nina shares more about her leadership in the flexible workspace, including some of the innovative solutions she's pioneered at Beaumont People. We'll talk about trialling a four-day working week model for full-time workers, what meaningful work really means for each of us, and the necessity of gender-neutral parental leave policies.
1: So I would like to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional custodians of our land. I am in Kurungai land here in near the Kurungi National Park, and that's the people of the Aura Nation. And I also acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging.
0: Thank you. And I'm on Kamaregal land, also in the Aura Nation, so not too far from you. There you go. <laughs> Thank you for that. Nina, welcome. It's so nice to have you on the podcast. We're going to dive straight in. Um, you have done a lot of work around workplace practices and how to make work better. And that's one of the things we're focusing on is how to make work better for the next decade and how we can do things differently. As we speak, Sydney Ciders are in the midst of another lockdown. And I noticed last week that somebody who works in your office posted an internal video that you had done at Beaumont People for your staff and I want to talk about the video a little bit because I think it'll tell our listeners what kind of a leader you are. In the video, you said you gave your people permission to park themselves and do the best that they could do during lockdown. You said put your own health and well-being first. And for those who are homeschooling, do the best you can and just get through it. I don't care if you have kids in the background, everybody understands. And in a week where There was a newspaper article where council said you can't supervise children and work from home at the same time. Your video stood out. So tell us what drove you to make the video and to tell your people to look after themselves.
1: Well, we um, at Beaumont People, we've actually been in lockdown a little bit longer than everyone else because we had a positive COVID case visit the floor of our building uh, way back on the 16th of June. So we were all deemed close contacts and we were put into self-isolation, anybody that happened to be in the office that day. So a lot of us, probably about 20 or so of us were in self-isolation, you know, not even allowed to leave your own Kind of room to see the people in the rest of the house um, just before lockdown hit everybody else. So we came out of self-isolation into lockdown. Fortunately, we were all fine and healthy and you know, it didn't impact anyone in our team, which was great news. But I understand having been in self-isolation myself and having been in lockdown myself, I know that that's hard. I also, you know, I am a mother. I have a 13-year-old son who doesn't cope particularly well with homeschooling, much prefers to be uh, in the actual schoolyard with his friends. And especially as an only child, he really misses that interaction. So I know that it's, challenging and I know that it's hard and I understand I'm a big believer as I said in the video I I really try and live by that I put my own health and well-being first because I cannot help others unless I'm at my best and our job what we do is help connect people to meaningful work now we can't even hope to connect other people to meaningful work if we're not in a good space ourselves so I figure that I'll get the best out of my people if they're in the best headspace they can be in and being afraid being worried being scared being stressed You know, there's a lot of that that's going on externally. I don't need to add to that pressure. So anything I can do to help them lift is probably, I think, important.
0: I'm sure there are a lot of people listening who would have loved their own leaders to come out with messages like that. It used to be so different, didn't it? Before COVID, we'd had conversations about mental health in the workplace, but leaders didn't need to know the home environment's Of their people. They didn't need to know if they lived by themselves or if their lounge room was their study and their living area and everything. How has that played out for you? How do you deal with that balance between kind of the fine line between work and home and having as a leader to really understand the environments that people are working in at home?
1: Well, we talk a lot internally about the fact that very few, you know, a very minor percentage of the population most people don't wake up in the morning thinking to themselves I want to do the worst day of work I can today most people don't wake up thinking I'm going to ruin as many of my colleagues days as I can I'm going to do a terrible job that's not how the vast majority of people think so we kind of have that as our premise with you know if things are going wrong if things are becoming difficult if there's miscommunication let's start with the premise that it wasn't intentional and go from there and I think that really helps I know that we've you know, I've certainly been on a journey with this. I I probably had some kind of reluctance around the work from home thing a while ago, long before COVID. I mean, I had already made that transition pre-COVID. We'd got better with it. But my natural instinct was you need to be in the office to work. I've had to make that transition myself. So I think it's important to get to that point. But the other thing we've done in Beaumont People that's made a massive difference is when we uh, looked at and rolled out the four-day week, we implemented productivity guidelines by role type as part of that. So now it actually doesn't matter what you do, where you do it, as long as you're meeting your productivity guidelines. So it's become kind of meaningless in terms of, you know, the hours you work or where you are doing it as long as those productivity guidelines are met. Now, obviously, there's some interaction that needs to happen and some communal time where people need to work together. But generally, that's what we look at. It's much more of a work for outcomes than a work for time mentality.
0: I love that because we've talked for a long time about working for outcomes, but I don't think we've actually gotten there. So tell us about your four-day working week. And this is in the wake of the Icelandic reports that came out last week where they said it was an unheralded success. I think they tested it with 1% of the Icelandic population and it improved well-being, reduced stress, increased productivity. Um, Participants reported an improved work-life balance. Spain's trialling it countries in Europe have started to think like this. Tell us what you did with the four-day working week and how it's working for you. And just to be clear, this is working for four days, but being paid for five. So it's not a pro rata or a reduction in in pay.
1: Exactly right. So uh, my business partner, founder of Beaumont People, Nikki Beaumont, had seen the chap from Perpetual Guardian, Andrew, I can't remember his last name, speak about it at a conference. And she got very excited. She spoke to him about it. She came back to me and said, we have to do this. And I'll be honest, I said, no, straight away. I felt that the time wasn't right. It was something that we talked about for probably about six months before we felt that the time was right for our business.
0: When was the time right, Nina? When did you think about putting it in?
1: So when we first decided to actually implement it, we, we decided to announce it in our company conference in August of 2019, so July, August of 2019. But what we did was say, we announced that we were gonna do it, but we wanted everybody to be involved in working out how it would work. So one of the things that we'd learned from the research was instead of us designing it as leaders, for it to work, we needed everybody's input into it. So we announced it at our company conference, um, and for the most part, people were excited, but not everybody. Some people thought it was a terrible idea. And we workshopped, you know, we did kind of all the different, you know, we had tables with the black hat and the, you know, and the, the, all the things that could go wrong and all the problems that we thought we could have. And we asked anybody that wanted to be involved, any level of the business, if they wanted to be involved in the workshops of designing how it would work, they could put their hand up and have a say in that. And we had lots of workshops. We probably over engineered it, if I'm honest that said, I don't know if it would have been so successful if we hadn't. So it's hard to know. But we did. I mean, you know, we got to a point, we actually said at one point, we're trying to solve problems that the business has, regardless of whether it's five days a week or four days a week, you know, how many times do we answer the phone within three rings? I mean, it got very granular at some point. So everyone participated. And we came up with productivity guidelines by role so that we knew if you were meeting those guidelines, you could qualify, you could get paid five days and take a day off as long as you were still doing, you know, meeting the outcomes of your role.
0: Can we talk about that a little bit? Because most people will be familiar with key performance indicators or scorecards or, you know, measures that people have on an annual basis that shows that they're getting their job done and doing what they're supposed to. How were your productivity guidelines different from those?
1: Um, So there was an awful lot of negotiation around the productivity guidelines. Let me tell you, (laughs) that was probably the hardest thing. And some of the roles are quite easy because if it's a measurable role, that's quite easy to see what some of those things are. But, you know, things like our marketing coordinator, what do we put for that? So, um, so yes, it's really, to be fair, it's mostly KPIs by another name. But because we called it Productivity Guidelines and because there was an extra day off work a week, people got very excited about it, whereas they hear the word KPI and they get very unexcited about it. So yes, there are financial metrics for those that are in you know revenue-related roles, but it was also things like compliance. We needed to make sure that our compliance standards didn't drop. It was things like we use a NPS score for our customer service, and we had never set a target around NPS score before, but we didn't want that to drop. So we started putting a target on that to make sure that that was maintained at a certain level and um, certain amount of collaboration. So we wanted to make sure that there was and um, we can we sort of share candidates. We're very big on sharing in our business. We try not to encourage any kind of isolated working. So how much we're sharing. So there were a lot of things we put in place to ensure that the cultural drivers were still there. Uh, but it was all discussed and agreed by role with everybody involved. Yeah, that's incredible. And
0: so you're doing this during, I'm interested in the timeline, because I know you got <laughs> you are hit with COVID in the middle of it. Yes. So you, you're doing all this during 2019, and yes. you get ready to implement, and then the world gets shut down.
1: So we finally decided in December 19, what we were going to do. And we decided that we would run a trial of it for February, March, April, May. I think we're going to do a five-month trial initially, and we didn't start in January because January is our quietest month. So to have those productivity guidelines, it's hard to meet those guidelines in January for our business. So it was meant to be a five-month trial. We started it in February, and then in March, COVID hit, and we were all suddenly at home anyway. And you couldn't really tell if people were working, so it kind of became a slightly moot point. We did put it on hold. What we actually did for the whole business at the very beginning of COVID was we put the four-day week on hold, and we said to everybody, finish at midday on Friday, just enjoy your weekend, stop at midday on a Friday. There's nothing so important that happens on a Friday afternoon that can't wait till Monday, short of people needing a temp on Monday morning, but mostly there's not much that can happen. So let's stop at midday and everybody kind of enjoy the weekend. So we did that for a little while where we kind of gathered our thoughts. But then we re-implemented the four-day week pretty quickly. Um, we actually lowered the productivity guidelines because initially we had guidelines that were pre-COVID guidelines and from a revenue perspective, we were, we were hit pretty badly at the beginning of COVID. So we did lower that to, it was really a, what would we be happy with people doing? Not what we'd love them to do, but what are we comfortable will keep us going through this. And we so we lowered the revenue targets for the revenue generating roles. And we've kept those guidelines in place ever since.
0: So on a practical level, how does it work? If you meet your productivity guidelines, you get to do it. If you don't, you don't.
1: Yeah, month by month. So if you meet them in one month, you get the four-day week for the following month. If you drop any month, you lose it for a month. How's that gone internally? It's gone very well. It's, I'm not going to lie, it's tough at the moment because we're actually so busy right now that the volume of workload is the bit that's making it hard for people to actually take the time off. And we're trying to encourage one of the reasons we wanted to do it in the first place was we were really worried about our staff burning out. We actually have a very high performing team and we don't necessarily need them or want them to perform quite as highly as they are because we don't want them to burn out and obviously that's their choice to a certain degree if they want to keep going we do our recruiters are paid on a commission model so if they you know if they if they bring in more money they make more money so they have that choice if they want to from for the recruitment part of the business but ultimately we, we'd rather almost have people doing a bit less and more people so that we don't risk that burnout piece and we don't risk that kind of exhaustion piece so that's the bit we're actually dealing with now is almost the flip side of where we were at the beginning of COVID so I'm constantly saying to everyone, take your four-day week, take your four-day week, please take your four-day week so that they can actually regroup a little bit.
0: Did you find as uh, you went into lockdown last year that people had more discretionary time? They weren't travelling. They weren't having to spend, you know, whatever, getting ready. They didn't have to drop kids off at school. But that discretionary time was going to work and so work days were becoming longer. How did you find, find
1: that dynamic? I think that was true for some roles in our business but not every role. Um a lot of particularly because with covid we as a recruitment business the the recruitment part rather than consulting part is very tied to the economy and the jobs so for quite a while at the beginning of covid honestly most of our consultants were fielding calls from candidates that were desperately looking for work and that's really tough and that's quite emotionally draining and quite hard on them so you know that's not something they're necessarily keen to start earlier in the day or later in the evening than they have to and they obviously they were doing their best to help and to try and assist but it's a bit like the counselor that can sometimes take on the emotion of the other people so and we were doing quite a lot of training around that so so the recruitment part of the business which is the biggest part was not necessarily doing longer hours. But but our consulting part, which does placement and career coaching, that was definitely um, very busy. As was our temporary, we actually had a lot of the temps in a number of the kind of government areas that were helping out with the COVID response. So so that piece got very busy. And there were definitely some longer hours going on there as well. So we just did a lot of internal training around work-life balance. We actually turned some of the internal training that we've done into workshops that we've helped clients with to help them deal with that and help them put both mental health and some physical and practical t- tips around how, how you manage that Tension when you're at home, when it is easy just to keep working all day, every day, if you're not careful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Nina, let's turn to you for a minute. I want to touch on it. You've touched on meaningful work, which I want to go back to. But these ideas that you're discussing, the four-day working week, encouraging your employees to not worry about kids in the background, to not burn out, they're quite innovative in the people management space where did your leadership philosophy come from or how did you build that philosophy over the course of your career?
1: I think the main thing I do Shirley is I try and learn from everybody you know everybody I work with people that I interact with in the leadership groups I'm involved with I try and look at at the way different people do things and I try and think to myself what do I think works and I also learn from people that I think are doing things that don't work. I take a very long term thinking approach to things. So I understand when I see people what I think are making leadership mistakes, often it's a short term approach, because they're fearful, or they're nervous, or they're scared, or they're worried about the results. So they try and push harder when that's the wrong thing to do at that point in time, for example. So I try and often think to myself, I really try and separate my personal emotional response from things, and think about what is going to get the outcome? Where do I want the business to go? Where do I want our people to be? How do I want them to feel? Because that goes a long way to where the business will go. And what's the best thing I can do in a moment to actually help that happen? I i am famous internally, I draw about all sorts of weird leadership things I do to train people. But one of them is I draw a picture of Uh, an airplane gone to the days where we used to fly from Sydney to London, I'm originally from London, you know, and I would do a little track of the airplane and how it's often goes off path There's, you know, uh, certain airspaces they can't fly in there might be storms that they have to avoid. And I talk about how on certain points of that journey, it looks like they're not going to make it to London on certain points of the journey, it looks like they could even be going in the wrong direction, depending on what's happened through that flight. But with their experience and with autopilot, they have absolute faith that if they do the right things, they're going to land in London. And guess what? They always land in London. So I talk a lot about don't let the little things push you off course. You know, you do need to look and work out, are they big things and should you adjust? Because there are times when you do need to. But if it's a little thing, don't let that blow you off course and change your tack entirely. Have faith and confidence that if you keep doing the right things, then the results will come because you can't control the outcomes, but you can control your behaviours. So focus on what you can control. Focus on your behaviours, and it will lead to the outcomes you're wanting. Rather than get too wedded to the outcomes.
0: You can learn lessons from everyone, can't you? So was your career planned? Then it sounds like if you started off with great mentors. It might have been. It might have had a little bit of planning.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a little bit of luck and a little bit of planning, like most things. I think so. Initially, it was a little bit of luck. When I was at university, I did a commission-only door-to-door sales job in the States for a number of years. In my holidays, I would fly over to the States and do door-to-door sales in the States. And I didn't have money when I was younger, I was struggling to pay my way through university. And so I wasn't really in a position to do this job. But a very dear friend of mine, Andrew Reid, he had been involved in it the year before. And he had said to me, and he had his own flat at the university at the time. So he had said to me, you'd be really good at it, you should do it. If you don't make enough money to pay for your rent next year at uni, you can live rent free in my flat. He had that much confidence in me. And I'll never forget that. And if you ever watches this, I thank you very much, Andy, because I never forget that, because that gave me the confidence to take that Risk that I might not have taken otherwise. Oh my, how generous! <laughs> I think he just, uh, you know, saw something in me or whatever. I'm not sure, but um, and that really led to great training and that kind of exposure to other cultures and working in different environments and a, you know, entirely different. I was doing a master's degree but doing a door to door sales job at the time. So the kind of combination of. Um, both the intellectual, but also the grit and the resilience were really useful. And from there, I moved, I deliberately moved into recruitment. I knew if you were good at sales, you could be good at recruitment. So that was a deliberate choice on my behalf. Um, and then the rest has sort of been sequential from there.
0: Nice story. I think many of us have been the recipients of other people seeing things in us that we haven't seen in ourselves. It's a really generous thing to do. Let's talk about your research that you've done into meaningful work. So you've got a tool online, which I'm sure you'll talk about. But on this website, you say 96% of Australians value happiness and better conditions over money. It's a world first in the research that you're doing. Tell us about this and because that's quite a shock that people value other things ahead of money. I think there are a lot of employers out there that think if they get the money right, everything else will fall into place and it's not always the case.
1: Yeah, that's right. This came about because uh, we were looking at our strategy and we were looking at kind of how our purpose defines our strategy and we built a strategy that we loved and we were very happy with but it felt very internal like a lot of strategies it felt very kind of tactical around what did we as Beaumont wanted to do and we kind of went does anyone else care about that you know what do people actually care about and so we did some workshops uh, with a wonderful lady called Carolyn Butler Madden who helped us articulate our strategy which was around creating connections to meaningful work so that's kind of what started us on the journey but we realized when we looked at into it meaningful work people use the term a lot but there was actually no definition of what meaningful work is it's just one of these terms that people bandy around there had been some research in France and a little bit of research overseas but there'd never been any research for Australia and there had been no research anywhere in the world that combined both the individual the psychological perspective which is what we commonly think of things like how do I feel about my job does it suit my personality traits am I motivated those kind of things but also the sociological perspective. I, how much does the the culture we're in? How much does that assign value to the type of work we do? So you know, I know Shirley, you're an ex lawyer. If you were, were raised in a family that really valued the legal profession, that probably helped you take that step. Other families that maybe didn't value that level of education or that kind of profession, it might have prevented you taking that step. So there's actually more in the sociological perspective than we realize. So we did the research that actually was the world first to combine the two together, and as such, we built a tool so that people can actually design their own meaningful work profile backed by the research to see which aspects of work are more meaningful to them and it's a tricky one because they're all lovely you know ideally you want (laughs) you do the you do the tour you go yeah i want that and i want that and i want that of course we want all of it but if it's a relative thing of which is actually more important and it really helps you as an individual kind of work out what are the levers that are going to give you the most satisfaction in work
0: so what are the most interesting pieces of information because obviously pe- people do it and you get the you get the analysis or you do the analysis what are the most interesting things you found out
1: I think well there's a couple of things the first is that everybody's definition of meaningful work is unique and i know that sounds obvious but we often think about You know, we bandy things around as if that's what makes work meaningful, you know, have great leadership or whatever it might be. And actually, there are some common factors that are more popular than others. So having the trust of your manager is the most common um, factor of meaningful work. People want a manager that trusts them and gives them autonomy. Culture is the second most popular and pay was actually significantly down the list, as you mentioned earlier. But that said, there are some people for whom pay is the most important factor. You know, it depends on the person just because it's the most popular doesn't mean it's true. For everybody and what we love about that is that piece around then if you're looking to connect individuals to meaningful work what you need to do is understand how is the organization providing it and what is the individual seeking and that's the match that's the bit people can't get right because often they'll look at technical skills or they'll look at culture and just culture which is only one aspect of meaningful work so it's when you look at all of the levers that you get a much better um synchronicity and, and therefore more meaning in work and better results all around on all the all the factors. Do
0: you think for people out there who are looking for work, do you think that there will be more companies using tools like this to create that perfect match?
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, an art and a science. You know, we've put some science behind this, yes, and the the, the tools that we've built, the the individual profile, which is available now and the organisational tool is coming soon, definitely help with those things. But it's like anything, they help with you moving the dial. It's not like everything is perfect all of the time in any organisation that, you know, I could list you lots of things that aren't perfect about Beaumont People, for example. But it's all about how do we continually look to twist the dial to improve. And that for me is what will improve outcomes in workplaces across Australia and over the next decade. You know, we talk about what does the future of work look like. That's where I think if we can keep moving the dial, then it creates better opportunities for everybody.
0: Then can anybody do the test, Nina, and go and see their results? Can you give us the website?
1: Yes, it's quite easy. It's meaningfulwork.com.au. So if you just go to meaningfulwork.com.au, you'll see the research there and you can take the profile and build your own profile from the website there.
0: And I have to admit I've done it twice and the first time it all looked great to me and so my results showed nothing and then the second time I was more measured about what was more important and so uh, I learnt that lesson firsthand. So talking about then what work looks like for the next 10 years and how companies can innovate and how leaders can innovate in this space, there's a lot of talk at the moment in terms of what we can do to improve conditions at work for women and men, parents, and you've put in place some gender neutral parental leave policies. Tell us about those.
1: Yes, we did this one in 2018. So we try and, if we can, we try and have something bigger at our conference every year. That's sometimes what drives us to come up with new initiatives. But so this was our 2018 announcement was we put in place a gender-neutral parental leave policy. So both myself and, and Nikki Bowman, the founder of Brown People, we both are mums. We're both the primary breadwinners in our family. And we both had experiences firsthand of what that was like going through it in very different scenarios. And as I'm sure the listeners will attest, you know, we've all had quite interesting experiences sometimes of parental leave piece. And I think it's difficult, even in really good scenarios. I think it's a very difficult thing to try and navigate and work through. But what we realised was that we wanted to put a a policy in place. We actually didn't have a policy until that point. Shame on us. We didn't, but we knew we needed to fix that. So we did. But we felt if we were going to do that, we needed to put the kind of, if we're going to do it, let's no half measures, let's do it properly. So we did some research and we did some financial modelling, which scared us because our demographic was very very heavily in the female of childbearing age demographic, but we looked at how many people typically go off on parental leave each year and we run the numbers but we also looked at, we didn't just look at how much it would cost us, we looked at how much would it cost us if we had to rehire new people because we lost them. And that's the bit we took into consideration. And the other big discussion we had was, did we want to tie the benefit to coming back? And we decided no, because we didn't want people to feel bribed into coming back. We wanted them to come back because they wanted to come back. So we decided that people would get the benefit anyway. That's when we went where well, it doesn't need to be about... You know, gender, it doesn't need to be about which carer you are, the primary, the secondary carer. It's absolutely entirely up to you. you have, the policy is equal regardless of which role you fit into. So, and um, we've had far more people take it up than we anticipated, uh, but it's been great and it's worked really well. And I think every, almost everybody has come back that's gone off. I think one person decided to stay off, but almost everybody else has come back.
0: So Scandinavia has had combined parental leave policies for a long time. You know, I think in some of the Scandinavian countries, they give a year and half has to be used by one parent, half has to be used by another parent. And I worked at the beginning of my career for a US company. And so my oldest is 23. And I got 14 weeks paid parental leave when she was born. Why do you think it's taken organisations so long and government so long in this country to come on board that parental leave journey? And we still don't have it right, do we?
1: No, and I find it's one of the things I find quite shocking. I consider myself fully Australian. I've lived here for... 20 years now and it's very rare apart from this morning when I think of myself as English anymore and I say that because it was the football this morning (laughs) but typically I think of myself as Australian these days but it was one of the things I was shocked by when I came here to be honest and I got no parental leave when I had my son 13 years ago um, with the organisation I worked with at the time so I, I felt that quite keenly and I was quite shocked by that coming from Europe which tends to have better policies in place Honestly, uh, I don't necessarily want to get too political, but I think it's a lot about the way that our economy and our politics feel about women in the workforce. I think there's a cultural shift that needs to be made and I think businesses, some businesses are trying to kind of make that shift happen themselves by their own policies, but uh, until we see, you know, shifts at the political level, I don't think it will filter down more broadly.
0: I totally agree. don't want to get political, but I, I think that analysis is one that is shared by lots and lots of people at the moment. So as we look ahead, you said that every conference you try and do something innovative. So we're now July 2021. We're in the middle of a lockdown. What are your thoughts for the next five years in uh, the areas that are open for innovation in that HR people space for companies?
1: It's a great question, and I think the key thing is going to come down to the wall for talent. I I have been quite astounded at how much the environment has flipped just in the last 18 months in terms of the war for talent so you know when at the beginning of COVID there was a lots of candidates not many jobs that happens in any recession and often even in kind of near recessions I've been through that several times in my career but for it to have flipped so quickly and so dramatically to a point where we are so candidate short at the moment uh, you know I expected where we are now to take about 10 years to get to. So for it to have come so quickly and anybody that's trying to hire at the moment will probably be experiencing significant challenges in hiring because we don't have we have the lowest mobility in the job market we've ever had. We have um falling unemployment very quickly and remember that the unemployment rate is a lag indicator not a lead indicator. And we also have, you know, limited immigration, limited backpackers, limited students, because of what's going on in the external environment. And so that has created a real shortage. And we we, similarly, we have almost every organisation in Australia, simultaneously going, okay, let's get on with it. Now, let's go ahead with our hiring plans, you know, so it's created this, this speed, in terms of demand. And the reason I'm highlighting that is that I think that will shape where we get to, and that's why. I mean, I actually come back to meaningful work because right now we're seeing what typically happens in a, you know in a capitalist environment. What's in demand is the, the salaries are going up, and that will come out in the in the um, as a lag factor as well. As we see, you know, I know there's a lot of talk about wage growth, but we're seeing that firsthand. We're seeing candidates being offered significantly more salaries, higher salaries than they have been typically for these roles. But that's not sustainable, and there's a lot of organisations that can't afford to do that necessarily in terms of their structures and the way they work. So people will be looking at the other levers that they can pull, and we're already seeing with COVID organizations that can't offer flexible work, that has become, it used to be a nice to have, it's become almost unexpected and organizations that can't offer that are really struggling in that war for talent. So I think we're going to have to get inventive in the business world about how we attract and keep our people. Or we might see a bit of a fragmentation of the of the market in terms of some organizations offering certain areas. I you, you've heard me talk before, Shirley, about Price Waterhouse Cooper's Workforce of the Future report where they talk about four worlds, and there might be this fragmentation about how the organizations differently try and attract different candidates. But that war for talent is going to be what drives everything. So it'd be interesting to see what comes out of it.
0: It's it's really interesting you say that because I've actually heard examples of people being give offered a number of jobs and actually walking away from the one with more with more money because the other one offered more flexibility and the one with the more money couldn't offer the greater flexibility although in sydney we're in the midst of a lockdown but companies have, have very much embraced this year the idea of a hybrid workplace so you come together for a day or or a time in the office and then the rest of the time people work separately are you still seeing companies being resistant to that like do you think that after each period of lockdown there are some companies who are just desperate to have everybody back in the office with bums on seats
1: yes unfortunately yes so there's there's some that have no choice the nature of the work is such that it requires people there and that's understandable. There are others though that haven't made that mental shift. And it's a hard shift to make, I, I acknowledge that because I struggled with it myself. I, as I said, I was lucky enough to kind of go through it a couple of years before COVID, but I did struggle with it a little bit myself. It's a hard shift for people to make, I think, for some people to make. And so if you've got a leader that is still wedded to being able to visibly see the workers' work, I think that's a real problem. Um and trying to get them to overcome that belief can be really challenging, and they might be forced by lack of talent at some point, but there are definitely still organizations out there that are struggling with that aspect.
0: And what, what's your advice to given the war for talent and how hard it is at the moment to get people in those in those roles pe- that organizations are looking for? what's your advice to any leader out there who's struggling with that hybrid workplace and the idea of letting people work wherever they want and how they want? How would you suggest they get over it? Because from an employee's perspective, it could be seen as a lack of trust. Going back to something you said earlier,
1: and and it's really important because, as I said, that trust of your manager is the most common factor of meaningful work. But equally, people one of the higher ones was also that people want direction and guidance from the manager. So it's not that they don't want the guidance, but they want to. The way it's delivered and the way it's managed is really crucial. So we talk to when we train leaders on this, we talk to them about um, setting up. Uh, outcomes-based goals that are uh, clear and understood and doing that in short time frame cycles so that there's less room for um, kind of miscommunication and misunderstanding. Now, everybody will have heard of SMART goals, but we say on top of the SMART aspect of SMART goals, you also need to talk through your team, make sure that they're agreed because a lot of kind of goals or KPIs or productivity outcomes, whatever you want to call them, they're not necessarily agreed by the other person. If they're foisted upon them and they don't think it's actually fair or reasonable, that becomes a problem. You need to make sure they're understood in terms of has the other person genuinely understood what's expected, because there's a lot that falls over between the the miscommunication there. You need to understand that they're supported. Is the employee supported to achieve the goal? Is there anything that's going to prevent them in the systems or the processes or anything internally that's going to prevent them from achieving that KPI, that goal, whatever you want to call it? And then they need to be constantly reviewed and refined. So so the reviewing and the refining, because, you know, I was talking earlier about the airplane, you do go off course. It doesn't mean you change everything, but you might just, you know, a little, Nip here a little tuck there just to kind of keep keep you on track so so if you can put the time and effort now that takes time and effort, and that's hard when people are busy and they're stressed, and often if this is a situation, they're short staffed which adds to the pressure and the stress. but it's that piece I was talking earlier about the long term game put the put the fires on hold even to play the long term game of working out what are those goals, and on top of that, what are those five things around agreed, understood, supported, reviewed, and refined and then let the person do it you know just just then all you have to do is focus on the reviewed and the refined let them go and then you can be less concerned about the trust aspect but yeah so you need to go through that process and you as a leader need to have a a hard look internally to say is it is it my issue is it their issue am i somebody that struggles with trust or are they not performing because it's one or the other and if they're not performing then you need to work on that if it's your lack of trust then you need to work on that yourself so you've got to kind of work out where you sit in that paradigm. That's
0: great, great, great advice. And for an employee out there whose who's leader or boss is struggling with it, what's the advice to them on the other side?
1: So we always encourage people to try and have honest conversations with their manager, their boss. You know, when people come to us, um, and a lot of people come to us for coaching through the consulting part of the business. So that's obviously a very Deep conversation there. But even if they're just coming to looking for a new role, one of the first things we'll say to them is, you know, is your manager aware that you're looking for work? And if not, you know, I get that you might not want to spell it out quite that directly, but have you at least tried to address the problems internally first? Because there's nowhere without problems. So let's, you know, we try and get a sense of how proactive the candidate has been in in trying to resolve those issues. But it's hard to have those conversations sometimes, and it does depend on the leader. So I always uh, try and encourage people, have a have a conversation with a, we use a, a technique called situation behavior impact. You know, the situation is surely that you don't want, want me in the office every day uh, because you feel like um, I need to be there every day. But that expectation on me is having an impact where I don't feel trusted. I don't feel like you trust me to do my work. I don't feel like I can actually do my best work because a lot of what I do is deep work and I need to be quiet and concentrate. And I could actually do that better from home. So I know that the outcome we're trying to get to is me achieving this goal from a workplace perspective. Can we have a conversation between us where we can come up with something that better reaches that outcome but has a positive impact for both of us? So that's a way you could try and have that conversation.
0: The last 18 months have challenged the way we work and have forced every organisation to think about how to put in work practices that are sustainable and prioritise not only productivity, but employee wellbeing. How refreshing it was to talk to a leader in the people business who tells her people that doing their best and prioritizing their own well-being is the most important thing, that having children on a Zoom call is not an issue. Nina is at the forefront of the work being done to challenge how we work. I loved hearing about the four-day working week as a new model for full-time work and how organizations can create a better match with potential employees by ensuring that they have the same view of meaningful work. Perhaps some of these innovative ideas could be implemented in your workplace. Thank you for joining us today. This episode was produced by Alison Ho and supported by Salesforce. You can contact us via Women's Agenda or me, Shirley Chowdhury, anywhere on social media. Women's Agenda comes out every weekday and you can read it and subscribe at womensagenda.com.au With half the country now in lockdown as this goes to air, stay safe and stay well. Until next time. Women's
1: Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.